0: Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the generosity of everyone involved to make this uh, presentation tonight. We give you thanks for my uh, grandmother's coming down to Birmingham, those that are setting up, and people that have taken time out of their life to attend this. Uh, we ask you to be with us, to open our minds and our hearts, so we can understand more about your divine economy and how we can respond better to you the world in which we live. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Um, Dr. Dave Anders has been with us before, so I'll keep the introduction brief. Uh, he has a PhD from the University of Iowa, is that right? Which is the oldest school of religion in the country. Yeah. In a state university. Okay, so, uh, and he actually did his doctoral work on the subject we have tonight, which is John Calvin, and through his work, I mentioned Mass, through his work kind of brought him the beginning is bringing him into the Catholic Church in 2003, right? Yeah, 2003. So we have a, 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 a four times a week radio show on EWTN called The Communion. So if you have to listen to it, please consider doing so. It's packed full. Of, it's very substantial. In the in the callers and in the response, very substantial. So it's well worth your wallet. time to do that. All right, All right thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, one disclaimer at the beginning: if I start slurring my words, it's not because I was tasting the wine, but I just put a numbing agent in the back of my mouth because I have a canker sore. So I can't go like this, just because I just numbed out my tongue. I apologize. All right, so it's kind of an odd topic. You know, Tom asked me if I would come talk on Calvin and the Reformation, and I thought, you know, not not the normal topic topic for a Catholic uh, uh, adult education group because. I've been invited to come speak on one of Catholicism's most implacable foes, John Calvin. Calvin said a lot of nasty things about the Catholic Church. He once wrote, For in all places where the tyranny of the Roman pontiff prevails, there the churches lie half buried. One of his favorite metaphors for Catholicism was the metaphor of burial. In Calvin's view, the gospel had been buried under a mass of corruption and superstition, and falsehood, and he saw it as his task to clear away the rubble of Catholic tradition and to free Christendom from the yoke of what he called papal tyranny. Um, Calvin had an interesting vision of reform. Uh, It's pretty foreign to most even Protestants today. He placed a very high emphasis on the liturgy, believe it or not, and in his view, The reason that Europe was divided politically, economically, and there was warfare and so forth is that Christ's churches were not purely reformed. The word was not purely preached, as he saw it, and um, and God was not purely worshipped. And if he could establish pure churches all over the place and then enforce that vision with the sword, he had a very public vision of the the Christian faith. Then he would bring about social equity and justice and so forth. So he had a very coercive view of reformation. Uh, and it's very different from a lot of the way Protestants conceive of their relationship to society today. So, for somebody that, that countenanced the public persecution of Catholics in, uh, in Protestant lands and believed that the Pope was the Antichrist and that Catholicism had buried the true number of massive superstitions, what can we possibly learn and benefit about our Catholic faith by studying this fellow? Well, in fact, <coughs> there are a few things. The first thing that I would like every Catholic to know about John Calvin is, ironically, that Calvin was an unwitting witness, an unwitting witness to the, to the truth of the Catholic faith, in this way. Um, Calvin actually upheld a lot of Catholic principles that Protestants no longer uphold. Um, for instance, Calvin believed very strongly in the idea of the unity of the faith. He had absolutely no patience at all with what we would call denominationalism today. He thought there was one truth that should pertain throughout the whole Catholic world. Uh, he saw that taught in the scriptures, obviously, and in the church fathers. It's just that he thought it was his truth, right? That was his difficulty. Um, he believed in the principle of uh, Catholicity, that yeah, the faith would be universally held. He believed in the principle of authority. Uh, unlike many Protestants today, Calvin's vision of sola scriptura, or scripture alone, was not that every man would pick up the Bible and read it for himself. It was rather that Calvin would pick up the law and deliberate it and tell everybody else what it meant and they would all jump on board. All right? So he had a kind of magisterium. It just wasn't the papal magisterium. It was the Calvinist magisterium. Um, and so these principles of Catholicity and unity and authority that have fallen in disuse among Protestants today nevertheless when we place Calvin in context and see that though he was misguided um, he, was, he was motivated by some genuine Catholic principles that he didn't think were... ...sufficiently instantiated in the church of his day. He actually thought the Catholic church was not Catholic enough. And I'm going to get into that over the course of the, over the discussion. All right? So that's one thing that we're going um, to learn about Calvin. Oh, on that line, I have a quote. This is from Calvin. Calvin wrote, he says, um, It is necessary for us to believe the church by whose womb we must be conceived if we would be regenerated into eternal life. For the church is the mother of us all, to whom the Lord has committed the treasures of his grace. And by her faith they are preserved, and by her ministry they are dispensed. For we can have no hope of the celestial inheritance if we do not first adhere to Jesus Christ our head by this communion with all of his members. For scripture declares that there is no salvation outside the unity of the church. Now that's a shocking thing. You wouldn't hear anybody at first pres you know, here at Montgomery probably talking that way. St. Cyprian himself couldn't have said it better. And, uh, you know, Calvin wasn't alone in this. Many of the reformers saw themselves. They thought that they were Catholics. And, uh, and they retained a lot of Catholic elements that Protestants have lost touch with. One of my favorite passages on um, this is actually from Luther. And I know you all studied Luther last uh, last month, but if, I, if you're just going to indulge me. One time when Luther was talking about the Eucharist, And he was contending with Calvinists, actually, with Zwingli. the Swiss reformers. And uh, he didn't like the fact that that Ulrich Zwingli had rejected the doctrine of the real presence. And so Luther wrote, and he said, The witness of the entire holy Christian church, even if we had nothing else, and he means even if we didn't have scripture, should be enough for us to maintain this doctrine and neither listen to nor tolerate any sectarian objections. For it is dangerous and terrible to hear or believe anything Contrary to the common witness, faith, and doctrine which the entire Holy Christian Church has maintained from the beginning until now for more than 1,500 years throughout the world. And I say, amen to that, Luther. I you know, would that you had been more consistent with your, with your view of ecclesial authority and tradition. Right. Um, secondly, Calvin is a second generation reformer. He was 26 years younger than Martin Luther. And when he came on the scene, the Reformation had already really got underway. And his reform looked to the Catholic Church, as Luther did. But he looked also to the internal state of Protestantism, a lot more than Luther did. And he saw what he thought were problems with Protestantism, and his reform was an attempt to kind of set the thing on the right path and overcome some of the internal dissension within Protestantism. So studying Calvin helps us see how the Calvinist reform arose from within fault lines that were inhibiting to Protestantism. I think I may have told you um, the last time I was here, one of the things that prompted my dissertation research so many years ago is I was reading a sermon by a Calvinist pastor named Pierre Viret. And uh, he was extolling the value of the Word of God, which is a very Protestant theme. And he sort of paused, he made an aside, and he upbraided his congregation for wearing Scripture literally pinning it onto their clothing. And, and he said, that's not what you're supposed to do with the Bible. You're not supposed to tear it out and stick it on your clothes. You're supposed to read it and live by it. And then he kind of went back to his main theme. And when I read that passage, uh, it's a 16th century text, I remember being impressed by the realization that it never occurred to me before how much of a divide there was within Protestantism between, say, the educated elite, the clergy, and then what the man in the pew was actually hearing. And I, I thought, that's a fascinating Fascinating subject. Like, it's one thing to read the official texts of Protestantism, it's another thing to read those in light of what the man in the street actually believed and held. right, I think I'll explore that. Um, And I came to find out that there was enormous variety, even within the same congregation, Protestants themselves divided along ideological, demographic, social, and other, and other lines and coming up with vastly different theologies and interpretations not only of Scripture but of other, what the Reformation meant. And this is the reality that Calvin was dealing with himself. Um, to some extent, the divisions within Protestantism from the outset related to the difference between what you might call the inner court of conscience. All right? And Luther himself appealed to conscience. He said, you know, my conscience is held captive to the word of God here I stand, I can do no other. Between the inner court of conscience and the external court of ecclesiastical authority. All right. Now, Catholicism recognizes both of these authorities, conscience and then, and then ecclesial authority, but reconciles them in a different way. Protestantism didn't have a good way to reconcile these two authorities, and they appealed to both of them, and it created conflicts and fault lines. Uh, that led to, to, to abortion, warfare, bloodshed, really. And Calvin was trying to mitigate those differences and reconcile them to a certain extent. It's, uh, it's not unrelated to the discussions that they had about sacramental theology because invariably, the more you stress the inner court of conscience, the more you tend, I think, towards a symbolic interpretation of the sacraments. The more you stress the reality of the sacraments, the more that implies an external religious authority that can regulate access to them. So, the biggest theological division in Protestantism was between the sacramentarians, the Swiss reformers that tended to spiritualize the sacraments, and the Lutherans that tended to have a more realistic view of the real presence. Alright, now, Calvin himself saw the Reformation as a divided, confused movement, and God had raised him up as a prophet to bring clarity and certainty. This was a text that Calvin wrote in about 1541, specifically on the doctrine of the Eucharist. And he said this. He wrote, It is no wonder that many weak consciences, consciences here again, cannot resolve what they must hold concerning the sacrament. But they stay in doubt and perplexity, waiting for the servants of God to come to some agreement. And by that he means waiting for the reformers to come to some agreement, all contention having ceased. And seeing that no good persons have considered the necessity of the situation, it has been required of me, which things I cannot refuse without contravening my duty. So this is Calvin's sense of vocation, right? God has brought me onto the city to help solve these interminable conflicts among Protestants. The servants of God can't come to any agreement, so the poor sheep are all confused about what they ought to believe, and it's my task to bring this needed clarity. God has raised me up for such a moment as this. It was a very arrogant view of reform, but nevertheless, that's how he saw his mission. Um, Just as an aside, how does Catholicism, by way of contrast, how does Catholicism uh, handle these competing claims of conscience versus an external authority? Briefly, within the Catholic paradigm, the authority of the magisterium, the external authority, is absolute but limited. Right? The Pope has an absolute jurisdiction over aspects of the faith, dogma, the sacraments, canon law, orders within the church. All right? He doesn't have an absolute jurisdiction over everything in human life. All right? In the Catholic paradigm, again, conscience is also absolute, but in a limited way. And this is the important critical difference. With, within Catholic Catholic theology, conscience is binding, not because it's interior, not because it emerges from my subjectivity, but rather because conscience has the potential to conform to reason, an objective norm. That means that conscience can err, and reason tells me that I can't make my conscience the objective norm for everybody else. So conscience is a subjective norm, but has to be approached tentatively because of its capacity to err. So in public matters like the definition of dogma, I defer to to the external authority established by Christ, namely the magisterium. All right, now... We also should, should look at Calvin because Calvin—if you understand Calvin—you understand something about the origin of some of the religious pathologies that are today. I mean, that's, a, that's kind of a euphemistic way of saying heresies or errors or you know, difficulties, right? And Calvin—I hate to say—was an important source, not the only source, but he was an important source for a number of religious pathologies that we are dealing with in American society today. In particular, and I've already alluded to this. There's a fundamental question in the world today about whether there is an objective moral order that can be known by reason. Whether there is an objective moral order that can be known by reason. Now, all of classical philosophy, whether Greek, Roman, Chinese, Indian, Jewish, Christian, agreed that there was such an order. And that it was the task of the reasonable man to adapt his life to it. And to deny that there's such an order, by contrast, is what C.S. Lewis called the abolition of man. Because it would mean the destruction of civilization and a return to barbarism, right? And I don't have to tell you what the prevailing tendency is in our popular culture right now. Whether in entertainment, law, politics, it's towards this abolition of man. Um, did anybody have an opportunity at any point to read the Supreme Court's decision in Planned Parenthood versus Casey? It's a fascinating example of this abolition of man. Uh, the court wrote that, the, that freedom entailed the ability to define for oneself what life meant, uh, what objective reality was, what morality consisted of. And so the court had to protect that absolute authority of conscience, not because conscience conforms to an objective norm, but rather because of its radical subjectivity, all right? That's a very dangerous philosophy, all right? Calvin was not a postmodernist. Uh, He did believe in objective moral order, but he did introduce critical doubts about the overlap between conscience and reason on the one hand and conscience and truth on the other. In Calvin's view, some conscience was right, not because it conformed to reason, but because it was animated by the Spirit of God, and it would confirm Calvin's idiosyncratic reading of Scripture. Right, let me run that by you again. All right, Calvin believed in conscience, and Calvin believed in objective moral order. But unlike the Catholic tradition, Calvin thought that consciences were right when, they, when God moved them, irrespective of reason. And the way Calvin knew you had a good conscience is if it agreed with Calvin. All right, you with me? All right, so, so his understanding of what conscience was and how you discerned it and its, its, uh, its, <coughs> uh, its obligatory force was disconnected from reason in an important way, all right? And so, while Calvin wouldn't have anticipated the decision of Planned <clears throat> <throat> Parenthood versus Casey, he introduced critical doubts into sort of the Protestant-Western mentality that over several centuries could develop in the direction of the postmodernism and the relativism that we're dealing with in the world today. Does that make sense to you? You understand that? Okay, all right. So, now I don't want to say that Calvin is the, is the only cause of that, but he's definitely a source. I mean, he's definitely an important source. Um, Now, something that Calvin's got much more closely related to, Calvin stands behind two of the most irrational movements in modern Christianity. And I don't mean to say that Calvin can be identified directly with these, but he influenced them. One of them is theological liberalism, and I don't mean political liberalism, and I don't mean being a Democrat, and I don't mean being on the political left. That's not what I mean by liberalism. uh, Theological liberalism is the idea that religion is simply a matter of feeling and sentiment and not truth. The idea that religion is a matter of feeling and sentiment and not truth. And that dogmatic claims to truth are are out or at best should be reinterpreted in light of ever-changing social warrants. On the other hand, fundamentalism lays stress on objective truth, the objective truth of revelation, but has a deep skepticism about reason's ability to converse with revelation. So fundamentalism, on the one hand and liberalism on the boat, on the other in different ways, both kind of sever the connection between revelation and truth. And Calvin was actually an important source for both of them because of his, his uh, literal hermeneutic of Scripture and his, and his unreasonable confidence in his own interpretive abilities. He sort of is the bedrock for fundamentalism. And because of his overemphasis on affectivity and the subjective in his experience of uh, the interiority of God... As, as over, overwhelming reason, all right? in that way, he kind of is a source of modern liberalism. Both movements have done much damage to the popular perception on the relationship between religion, truth, and morality, and they've both contributed to the dominant postmodernism. Um, even fundamentalism, ironically, contributes to postmodernism. I wrote an article one time for our website about how much damage a conservative Protestant commentary does in the debate over gay marriage because if you ask proponents of gay marriage uh, what do you think about the arguments against gay marriage Their most likely report is there is no principled argument against gay marriage all you have is a superstitious appeal to an ancient holy book you don't have any objective moral reasoning behind your opposition to gay marriage and the, the sad truth is when, a, when applied to certain evangelical and fundamentalist Protestant groups the charge is absolutely accurate I've surveyed and I've read them and I've looked at their websites and their documents they don't appeal to natural law. They appeal to the Bible. There's nothing wrong with appealing to the Bible. But it doesn't work when you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe the Bible. You have to meet them on the common ground of human reason. And that's something that Calvin is unwilling to. And so in, a, in an unwitting way, Calvinism has actually contributed to the breakdown of public morality. All right. Does that argument make sense to you? You follow? Okay. All right. So... And they found it's important to look at Calvin because Calvin is just, quite frankly, an incredibly important source for uh, social, political events in in the development of the modern world, from the French Wars of Religion to uh, Puritan New England, uh, you know, to the Great Awakenings in American history. Um, he was just an incredibly important social and political force. He's been compared, not an ideology, but an impact. He's been compared to Marx and Lenin in terms of the scope of his influence worldwide. I mean, Calvinism was was deeply meshed in a kind of perverted way, even in the apartheid of South Africa. I mean, it's it, the whole world really has been affected, one place or another, by Calvinist ideology, uh, just like Marxism spread throughout the whole world. Alright, so another interesting thing about John Calvin is that he made me a Catholic. Alright, and uh, if anyone's interested, I wrote an article, and you can find it online, about how John Calvin made me a Catholic, and to this day it remains my public writing that has generated the most, uh, the most views. What made me move towards Catholicism as a result of, of reading Calvin, first of all, was my realization that modern evangelical Protestantism had moved very far away from Calvin. Uh, I alluded to that at the beginning, but he wanted to retain Catholic elements the Protestants today have jettisoned, all right? That struck me as interesting. I thought, well, if, if Christianity can, can break apart between Calvin and evangelical Protestantism, why could, and, you know, how, how can I have Any assurances at all okay. um, Secondly Calvin pointed me Towards the sacramentality of the church I grew up in a tradition Modern evangelical Protestantism In which the sacraments are viewed As almost unnecessary, almost unnecessary. Uh, you know, we, we practiced them Or what we thought were the sacraments Merely in following the command of Christ But we invested very little meaning in them When I went back and read the reformers I found how important the sacraments were To their understanding of the Christian life Um, And that made me question my modern Protestantism. However, Calvin's approach to Catholicity was untenable. Calvin tried to wrench the sacraments, he tried to wrench ecclesial authority, he tried to wrench Catholicity, he tried to wrench the unity of the faith outside of their ground in the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. He tried to recreate them on his own turf and it fell apart on him, you know, within a generation. So, while he woke me up to the reality of the church and his sacramentality, I saw that, I, I, that that got me interested, but I saw that Calvin himself couldn't give a, a persuasive and compelling way to make that happen, all right? Finally, Calvin was an inveterate jerk, <laughs> all right. And the more I dug into his life personally, the more distasteful I found him. Uh, I mean, he wasn't immoral in the sense of being licentious. But he was a very proud man. I read thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of Bible letters and sermons and, and, and court records and legislation and everything else. And never found him apologize. Ever. To anybody. For anything. He was, right. he, was right. he was always right. He was always right. He was always right. He was always right. He was the prophet of the Lord. How dare you contribute God's word. On and on. He was an incredibly uh, arrogant and cocky man. Um, he was principled. He was hardworking. He was industrious. He was extremely effective, very prolific, and intelligent beyond all his imaginations. But, uh, but he had no personal humility at all. And that contrasted so strongly with what I found in the lives of the Catholic saints, great intellectuals like Thomas Aquinas. You know, if you read Saint Thomas, he's invisible in his writings. You don't see Thomas in the sermon at all. He's not there. He's he's vanished. He completely obscures himself from his work. And his passion is the truth. You know, it's just the truth. And the same is true of. Catherine of Siena, or Teresa of Avila, or you know, uh, uh, Saint Francis of Sales, or Saint Augustine—any of the doctors of the Church—is uh, they they obscure themselves from their writing, and they and they submit themselves entirely to the judgment of the Church, and they were involved by this, this carried along by this incredible supernatural charity and love and humility. If you've read Saint Teresa of Avila, you know it's just humility, 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 humility—that's that's the ground the end, of the summit of everything. Even how humility we've lost. And that's stood in stark contrast to what I found in the land of Calvin. Alright, so digging in a little bit more. Um, on the eve of Calvin's reform, the most important factor with <coughs> Protestantism, of course, uh, uh, visibly would be the Lutheran and Reformed division. The Lutheran churches in, in Saxony, Germany, the Scandinavian countries, uh, and the Reformed Church, basically the church in Switzerland, okay, which in the 1520s met Gorlix Zwingling, in Zurich. And their main division, as I already alluded, was over the reality of Christ in the sacraments. Zwingli held for a symbolic interpretation. Luther held for a realist interpretation. Zwingli held that, that if Christ had a real body, real bodies cannot be present in multiple places at one time. Um, Zwingli was later killed, with, I think the second war of Capel, and he was drawn and quarterly. And they sent word to Luther, and Luther's response was, you see, a body can be in one in one place at one time. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alright, another conflict that I already alluded to is the conflict between populism and authority. Uh, Luther himself never really anticipated this. He thought that he put the word of God out there, and everybody would flock to it, and the word of God meant his interpretation. There was a, a, a prosecution a for heresy in 1528 in the French city of Troyes. There was a cloth worker named Nicolas Boivin. I just have this from a social history I read years ago. And under interrogation, he said this. This is this no-name cloth worker in, in Troyes. said, there are many of us who study the Bible and the books of Luther of Germany. And after we have read him, we go out preaching through the country. And there is no doctor or cleric who can stop us. All right, And that was, uh, you saw a lot of it. You saw a lot of people who would pick up Luther, pick up the scriptures, and they would read it and the end by buy it. And they would apply it in any way they like, And they would take what they liked and they would of what they didn't like. And if you remember the story of the, pla- the placards, or the placards that got posted in the bedroom door of, of François Prenier and Amboise. Um, it's fascinating to see what the French Protestants, early French Protestants of the 1520s and 30s, objected to about Catholicism. Luther would go on about justification by faith alone. They went after the mass. And the placards, which is an early Protestant propaganda pamphlet that got you know, plastered around in France, only attacked the mass. Why? Because the mass was a symbol of uh, priestly clerical authority. And what motivated the common man wasn't so much abstractions of a dogma, it was anti-clericalism, the perception that they were ex- excluded from the clerical state and you know, subjected to low order in society. So that led to a different kind of reformation than the common man. Right? Calvin, in his young life, was sympathetic to populism. He once wrote, um, Since the Lord has chosen the prophets for himself from the ranks of shepherds, apostles from the boats of fishermen why should he not even now deem to choose like disciples but shortly thereafter Calvin regretted that sentiment and spent the rest of his life trying to beat down the popular Protestant Reformation that's why I titled my dissertation Prophets from the Ranks of Shepherds John Calvin and the Problem of Popular Religion alright so that led naturally to the problem of radicalization of the Reformation and this fellow here Thomas Munzer was a Lutheran preacher, quasi-Lutheran preacher, who who got involved in the Reformation in Germany and preached uh, communitarianism and charismatic prophecy and ongoing miracles and so and so forth and you know radical reconstruction of the social order and um, instigated the peasant rebellion in 1525 and he and his followers were killed. Um, so you know turning the Reformation into radical political experimentation was almost inevitable and led to bad results. All right, so the Reformation politicized. So that's the context. It's already gone on before Calvin enters the scene. That's the, world he's, that's the world he enters. And this is what Calvin thought about all this theological diversity. And I want you to read this next quote. And think about this in light of what you know about modern Protestantism. Um, Calvin once wrote, Every state of life has its own gospel, which they forge for themselves according to their appetites, so that there is as great a diversity between the gospel of the court, the gospel of justices and lawyers, and the gospel of the merchants, As there is between coins of different denominations. I think that's the most ironic term that he used to to castigate this uh, this theological difference that broke down over social and political grounds of Protestantism. And he thought it was execrable. He hated it. He had no patience for what we would call denominationalism today at all. Thought it was a scandal. Um, So that's Calvin's frame of reference when he enters into the world of Reformation. Geneva, where Calvin would have his his reign, as it were, for so many years. The situation in Geneva in 1536, the year that God wrote the first edition of the Institutes, before he went to Geneva. um, Geneva was ruled prior to the Reformation by a prince-bishop. It's fortunately an institution we don't have in the world anymore today. Um, The the Duchy of Savoy, Savoy, in the south of France, um, generally... Appointed one of its sons to the bishopric of Geneva, so he would be he would be the Savoyard prince who would also serve as bishop of Geneva, and he probably didn't visit his see very often because it was the sinecure. He would just collect the livings and rule through the canons and the cathedral. And didn't wasn't very personally involved. So he's a bad bishop, generally speaking. But it also meant that reformation, that political revolution and reform in Geneva, uh, was very very happily tied to uh, religious reform because with the same authority, secular and religious, it's difficult to reform the one without reforming the other. So it made Geneva ripe for religious reformation or revolution. So in that context, 1536, um, the Swiss city of Bern, which is a German-speaking city, had fallen under the influence of the zurich Zwinglian Reformation. And Bern was politically strong and militarily strong and was encouraging other Swiss cities to join it in a military union. And so Geneva did, and because of their military connections with Bern, they fell under the influence of the Zwinglian reform. Um, and they recruited a man named William Farrell, who was French, he came from the Diocese of Meaux and had uh, come of age under a reforming Catholic bishop there. And the thing that characterizes William Farrell's preaching was that it was very iconoclastic. It was about tearing down altars and breaking statues and desecrating hosts and, you know, throwing up, I mean, h- handing out the scriptures. And uh, there wasn't a lot of systematic thinking in Farrell. It was a lot of bombast and, and you know, uh, pulpit pounding. He would have looked like, you know, kind of your un- untutored uh, you know, Southern Baptist preacher off on the sticks kind of thing. That was kind of <laughs> uh, William Farrell's, uh, his... Um, his uh, attitude, well, the, the Catholic reformer Erasmus was familiar with Pharaoh and he said that all Pharaoh was interested in was tearing down statues and, and, uh, you know, and, and showing down priests so he didn't have a very well developed theology. So the, the Reformation in Geneva was characterized by iconoclasm and anti-clericalism. Right. And also by Erastianism, as a technical term that means the political control of religion. Right. And uh, early reformers all believed that the state should intervene in matters of religion and the church should be subservient to the state. That's something Calvin disagreed with, which is one of the reasons that Calvin is sometimes called the most Catholic of the reformers. Because you know that the principle of the separation of church and state is a Catholic principle, right? That goes back to the earliest days of the Catholic church. Jesus himself said, my kingdom is not in this world, right? And uh, it was the Protestants that brought in state-controlled religion. All right, so Calvin... Grows up in this environment before he goes to Geneva. Calvin was educated as a humanist. Um, he had a deep concern for social order and equity. He trained as a lawyer before he started studying classical literature. Uh, his first published work was a commentary on Seneca's de Clementia, which is a treatise on good government. And that kind of gives you his frame of reference. He thought about social reform a lot. He thought that it was important to reform uh, religion because it would have social implications, all right? As um, to illustrate Calvin's attitude of hubris, uh, this is a real quote from him. He gave it out to the, to the Messios of Geneva on his deathbed. He boasted that I have not corrupted one passage of scripture. Meaning that he gave up the correct interpretation of everything he ever touched. He was completely sure of that. All right. So he was a humanist and he was an elitist. He, he was not a populist. Calvin, uh, his writing is filled with disparaging remarks about the common plebs, of the vulgar multitudes, you know, factious and seditious mobs. That sort of thing fills his writing to a great extent. Uh, He was above the fray. He was a man set apart. He was one of the Illuminati. Um, Interestingly, when you read Calvin's account of his conversion to Protestantism, he says nothing about repentance from personal sin. See, Luther was all caught up in this dynamic of guilt, and repentance, and You know, freedom from sin. You find none of that in Calvin's autobiographical remarks. In Calvin's self-conception, his pass from Catholicism to Protestantism was one of shedding superstition and of attaining enlightenment. So he sees himself as having passed into a kind of intellectual Illuminati. That's his understanding of the Reformation. Calvin had a strong sense of vocation. He said, from the very beginning, people who wanted to pure religion would come to me to learn. That was, his, that was his self-attitude, all right? uh, Quickly, he became a defender of Lutheranism, and what he mostly wanted to defend Lutheranism against was the charge of social disorder. He recognized there was social disorder, but he believed that, that was because people were corrupting the pure message of Luther for their own selfish ends. but he was going to set that straight, all right? And so, in 1536, in part, to answer this charge of social disorder, he wrote the first edition, of his famous book, The Institutes, which would go through multiple, multiple editions over the next over the next 30 years. The last one, French edition, came out in 1564, the definitive Latin in 1559. Um, again, to answer the charge of disorder. Calvin had a cousin named Dutidae. He once uh, accused Calvin of hubris because Calvin had taken upon himself the task of reforming the church and of... of, of, of uh, acquiring a quasi-clerical state, and pastor in Geneva. And he challenged Calvin and said, Calvin, you have no right to do this. You have no mission. You have no commission. You haven't been called. You you haven't been ordained. And Calvin's response was, I beg you to allow me to follow the rule of my conscience, which I know, to be sure, and yours. (laughs) Are you getting a picture of the man? Alright, so Calvin is passing through Geneva just kind of happens to me, he's not intending to go there, he's actually trying to avoid a war, he was traveling on his studies. And William Farrell, who I mentioned earlier, sees Calvin in 1536 and recognizes him as the author of this of this uh, blockbuster, best-selling Protestant with the Institutes. So Farrell Carroll insists that Calvin stay and work in Geneva. Calvin first resists the call, but Carroll, uh, Threatens him, says God will judge you if you don't stay. So Calvin decides to stay and work in Geneva. He's appointed as a lecturer in Holy Scripture, and uh, which meant he was to read scriptures and expound them. And Calvin also insisted very early on that, they, that the city was in disarray and needed a common confession of faith. He helpfully provided one, right. the 1537 Confession of Faith that Calvin wrote, and demanded that um, everyone in this, that all the citizens of Geneva, subscribe to the Confession of Faith that he wrote. Alright? He also insisted on weekly communion. Now that might strike you as uneventful, except to recognize that in the Middle Ages, and up until, actually, uh, uh, not so long ago, Catholics would have would have communed only once a year at Easter. Uh, maybe more often than, but not a lot. So the idea of weekly communion was kind of radical. In particular, when Calvin demanded the pastoral right to examine the consciences of all the communicants before they could receive communion. Alright? And so, d- the demand for weekly communion w- went along with an incredible assertion of pastoral authority. I mean, far more invasive than anything poor Father Driscoll back here had ever been Okay. And um, and not surprisingly, Calvin got kicked out in 1538. All right. And the, the the perception of the Genevans was, we didn't bring you in here. We just got rid of one Pope. We don't want another one. All right. And you're setting yourself up as the Pope, so we really don't want Calvin then went to Strasbourg, where the former Martin Bucer was underway, and he was assigned the pastorate of, the, of the, um, uh, Protestant church, the French Protestant church in Strasbourg. And while he was there, this is where he really began to develop his theology, influenced to some extent by Bucer, also by his challenges in Geneva. And I want to stop a little bit and talk about Calvin's theology now. All right. The first thing you have to recognize about Calvin was Calvin had peculiar ideas about ecclesiastical authority. If, you were, if I were going to pull everybody in this room, what do you think is the Protestant adoption of authority? Everybody should shoot their hands on the same solo scripture, the Bible alone. You know? And that's true, alright? And so Calvin subscribed to that. However, Calvin had a very different understanding of what the Bible meant, the Bible's authority, in the process today, alright? I read gazillions of pages of Calvin. You almost never find Calvin exhorting his congregation to read the Bible. Almost none. It, all right? What you find him doing is exhorting his congregation to listen to the Bible as he expounds it, or as some other pastor expounds it. <coughs> Scripture alone for Calvin was more about the place of the Bible in the liturgy than it was about <coughs> the place of the Bible in the life of an individual Protestant. And in fact, Calvin says a lot about the dangers of private interpretation of the Bible, he had no patience with the kind of Protestant who would take a Bible and go in his room and read it for himself and come out with the correct interpretation, unless it was governed. Right. But if it was another Protestant, he had no patience for that. So, Bible alone didn't mean for him what it means for Protestants today. Uh, he Calvin endorsed the Presbyterian system of church government, elder rule. He was not inimical to episcopal authority. In fact. He even tolerated the idea of the patriarchate, provided it was a Calvinist patriarch. Calvin himself operated as a kind of de facto bishop without the title in Geneva. The key doctrine was his view that it was the reformed pastors who would function as interpreters of the divine will. And This is Calvin speaking now. He says, We admit that ecclesiastical pastors are to be heard just like Christ himself, but they must be pastors who execute the office entrusted to them. So, Calvin believed that provided the pastorate was duly ordained and submissive to Scripture and not to the Roman Pontiff, he had a really unreasonable confidence in their ability to authoritatively expound sacred text. And so he had endowed the pastor, the pastoral staff, with a vast authority. Really, in, honestly, far in excess of what a Roman Catholic priest would enjoy in his interpretation of Scripture. Alright, count on the liturgy. Um, Calvin had a hatred. This strikes process as Well, I tell this process. I don't believe me because they're so far from from this. Calvin had a hatred of private devotion. All right? To understand something about the Calvinist Reformation, you have to see it in context. And what you saw Catholicism doing. As I mentioned back in the fall when I spoke earlier, Catholicism at the time was a very devotional and liturgically rich tradition. You had the Mass, of course, but you had a lot of private devotion, pilgrimages and confraternities and all kinds of groups and associations and private practices outside the context of the liturgy Calvin saw all of that as a recipe for disorder and um, there's a catholic historian from the 17th century named Florent de Raymond who recorded the following story about the reformed church in France and this is characteristic curiosity led a reformed minister to enter the church of Saint André in Bordeaux as he entered a little before Vespers he looked around the hall, and he noticed a man of his acquaintance praying in the corner of the chapel on his knees. The minister, therefore, seeing one of his flock, whom he noticed in the corner of the church, called him before the consistory, that's like the ecclesiastical court, where he asked him, You know well what I saw you doing in the church yesterday. Aren't you ashamed? Mm-hmm. If you saw me there, other replied, Weren't you there too? Yes, answered the minister, but I was not praying to God like you are. Certainly, he replied, I have not known until now that it was bad to pray to God. Now, when I read that to Protestants, they, they don't get it. But if you understand the context, there was almost a almost a hatred of the idea of extra liturgical spirituality, except within very strongly circumcised, circumscribed boundaries. So, <laughs> none of <those>. <laughs> <laughs> We had a guy reading fair uh, in t- prayer intentions at Mass. This was probably two years ago, and he said, "Lord, we pray for a greater respect for hu- for human life." from contraception to natural death. <laughs> 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 um, all right, so maybe we not going uh, Now, here we go. The interesting stuff. Calvin and the sacraments. Calvin had to navigate between a couple of poles in his sacramental theology. On the one hand, he, he wanted to reconcile, this is, as I read, I read at the very beginning, he really wanted to reconcile all the Protestant movement around one doctrine of the Eucharist. He said in this uh, book in 1541 that I quoted that proper knowledge of the Eucharist is necessary for salvation. That's something no Protestant would say today. No Protestant for the life would say that you have to have the proper doctrine of the Eucharist to be saved. But Calvin did say that. right? So he wanted to reconcile Zwinglians and Lutherans. Um, uh, which meant he wanted to account both the symbolic understanding of the, of the sacrament as well as the doctrine of the real presence. He also wanted to affirm the objective efficacy of the sacraments, that the sacraments really do something. Right? Otherwise, why the liturgy? Why so much emphasis on liturgical spirituality if the sacraments don't do anything? All right? But he wanted to guard against what he called the superstitious reception of the sacraments. He wanted to guard against a reception of the sacraments that was not informed by faith, alright? Because he was so keen on teaching, scripture, catechesis. So he came up with this idea, and I never understood why he thinks this is biblical, alright? But he came up with this idea that he called the Doctrine of the Mystical Presence. And what Calvin concluded was that Christ is really there in the sacraments. Not, as he put it, carnally. Uh, He's really there in the sacraments. And he's he's bodily made available, but but not locally. Let me see if we can explain this. What Calvin thought was that the body of Christ would be made available in the sacraments but in a mystical way. So the body remains in heaven, the worshiper remains on earth, but Christ's body and the worshiper's body are united in a mystical way through the power of the Holy Spirit. When the sacraments are received by the elect with faith. So it's a very nuanced view. So if you're elect, you're predestined, and you receive the sacraments in faith, then by the mysterious power of the Spirit, the body of Christ is made present to you in a miraculous way that's not local. Right? Therefore, he would not have countenanced Eucharistic adoration. You would have seen that as idolatrous. Because Christ is not locally present in the earth. All right? But he's present to the believer by the power of the Spirit with the sacrament to receive in faith. It's so subtle, nobody understands it. It took me years to wrap my head around what Calvin meant. His own parishioners didn't understand him, And I know this because I read the records of consistories when people were called in and examined on their doctrine, and they never got this. It's, it's hard to wrap your head on it, which is why most Calvinists default to the Zwinglian view, which is the purely symbolic view. Most Calvinists, most Presbyterians today, don't know that they actually are supposed to believe this. Okay. Um, now, uh, one of the strange qualifications of Calvin's sacramental doctrine is that they always work, but only in the elect. They always work, but only in the predestined. All right? This is what he says about baptism. He says, Although by baptism, wicked men are neither washed nor renewed. Yet, baptism retains that power so far as it relates to God. Because although they reject the grace of God, still it's offered to them. But here, Paul, he's quoting Paul, addresses believers in whom baptism is always efficacious and in whom, therefore, it is properly connected with its truth and efficacy. All right? So, he kind of wanted to have his cake and eat it, too. He wanted to say that the sacraments always work, all right, in this mysterious way, but they only work that the elect when receive in faith, all right? Now, um, there's an ambiguity here. You have to have baptism, Calvin taught, in order to be regenerated by the Spirit of God. If you exclude your kids from baptism, you're not a believer, you're a toast, okay? But not all the baptized are regenerate. All the regenerate are baptized, but not all the baptized are regenerate, all right? That's Calvin's view. Okay. Now, uh, what's the uh, what's the Catholic position? All right. So just by way of contrast, the Catholic Church would teach everyone who is baptized is born again by the Spirit of God. Everyone who is baptized is born again by the Spirit of God. Um, but not all the regenerate go to heaven. All right. In Catholic theology, you can be born again and then you can walk away and you can leave the state of sanctifying grace and go to hell. All the baptized regenerate, but not all those regenerate now will make it happen. It's the Catholic doctrine. Secondly, uh, ca- uh, the Catholic Church also teaches that you don't have to be water baptized to be regenerated. You can be baptized by desire and you can be baptized by blood as well. Right. Baptism is necessary for salvation if you're the Catholic, but you can, be, you can be related to that sacrament in a variety of ways. Some of them perhaps known only to God himself. So, um, there's the objective efficacy of the sacraments in in Catholicism, without exception, and yet, allowance is made for the mercy of God. Calvin is kind of the absolute inverse of that. The the quasi objective efficacy of the sacraments and and no allowance for those outside them. This leads to the number one problem in Calvinist theology. Is this making sense to y'all? It is very subtle stuff. The problem, the number one problem in Calvinist theology is the problem of assurance. Because, if the sacraments are always efficacious, but only in the elect, then what's the question you have? Am I elect? Am I elect? And it gets worse when you understand that Calvin, along with the whole Protestant tradition, teaches that you can have an absolute assurance of your salvation. How do you fit these pieces together? This is the problem in Reformed theology. The the Puritan historian, Terry Miller, once said, and I love this, he said that the the Protestants got rid of penances and indulgences, but they threw themselves on the iron couch of introspection. Alright, that's a great metaphor, Uh, Another one, a friend of mine who writes for the website, Jason Stillman, once said when he was a Protestant pastor a Presbyterian pastor, he said of the Calvinist position, the elect know for sure that they're going to heaven and I might be one of them. (laughs) All right. Um, another element in Calvin's theology is the doctrine of the witness of the Spirit. And I alluded to this earlier. Calvin had to justify his break with Rome. He had to justify his idiosyncratic interpretation of the Bible. He even had to justify his account of the Christian canon of Scripture, what books go in the Bible, because he couldn't appeal to the authority of the church, obviously. And so he appealed to this nebulous quantity called the witness of the Holy Spirit, what my friend Father Lambert Green calls the FIF, the Funny Internal Field. and um, in fact when describing this Calvin will actually appeal to feelings he will talk about feeling a divine energy at work alright in other words it is a it is a right subjectivism a rank subjectivism that Calvin introduces into theology the principle that I can know something with certainty because I have an interior subjective experience and that can tell me something with certainty about the objective world beyond what my senses and reason tell me when I wrapped my head around this doctrine, that is when I knew I could no longer be Protestant. I didn't yet know I would be Catholic. I had to discover St. Thomas and find out the rational faith could do. But when I, I sat there and I was meditating on Calvin and the witness of the Spirit, and I thought, you know, it's so important to Calvinists that they know that they know that they know that they know that they have absolute assurance of all these things. And I said, okay, how do I absolutely know? Well, I absolutely know by the witness of the Spirit. What does that look like? What does that mean? It means I've a funny kind of feeling. What can I infer from that about the metaphysical world out there? Absolutely nothing. I can only affirm that I've had a funny feeling. I have no rational basis for being a Christian at all. No, no. It, it all fell apart for me. In an instant. Right? James Joyce got this. You know, James Joyce was raised a Catholic. He left the Catholic Church. And he was asked, are you now going to go become a Protestant? And he said, but I've lost my faith, not my mind. <laughs> Um, So, the paradox in Calvinism is an irreconcilable conflict between the subjective and the object. And I think I've tried to bring that up in a number of areas in Calvinist theology. Whether it comes to the question of how do I know I'm saved, whether it comes to the question of how do I know what the real church is, whether it comes to, you know, the, 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 the domain of conscience versus external ecclesiastical authority. Within Calvinism there is an irreconcilable conflict between the subjective and the objective. All right. So, by way of contrast, um, Calvin, I haven't talked about predestination yet. I'm going to get to that if I still have time. But because of his doctrine of predestination, Calvin would say, he's talking to you, I am unsure if God loves you or wills your salvation. I'm unsure. I don't. I can't say that God loves you or wills your salvation. You might be damned. You might be a reprobate. Right. Catholicism teach, I'm absolutely sure. That God loves me equals my salvation. Right? Calvin says, if he thinks this, I'm absolutely certain that I'm saved. Okay, shouldn't strike you as incongruous there, it is. Absolutely certain I'm saved. The Catholic Church says, I'm absolutely certain that God saves those who remain in Christ. So the Catholic answer to the problem of assurance is so much more rational and satisfying. If you want to know if you're going to heaven and you're a Catholic, Ask yourself if you're in communion with Christ through the church. Are you receiving the sacraments? and you been to confession? Are you in a state of grace? If you are, you have a pretty sound basis for a pretty lively hope right now. Combined with your knowledge of God's universal will to save, I'd say you can go home and rest easy. All right, not presumptuous, but confident. Okay? confident. But you've got to stay there. You've got to stay in Christ. You've to remain in Christ. You've to walk in the Spirit. St. Paul says you can't go and leave your life you know, cheat at your job and do these other things if you're a Catholic. But provided you live in Christ, you have a lively hope of salvation. Right? Uh, the Calvinist has a conditional certainty about the means of the grace. Conditional certainty. I know that baptism works. I just don't know if it works for my child. I know that baptism works. I just don't know if it works for me. Right? The Catholic has an absolute certainty about the means of the grace. I know that baptism works. Here, paragraph. I've been baptized. I mean, cross. Um, Calvin teaches the true church agrees with my interpretation of Scripture. You want to know what the true church is? It's all those people who agree with me. That's the true church. Okay? The Catholic says my interpretation of Scripture must agree with the true church. Alright? So it's a brief breakdown of the difference between Calvin and the Catholic Church. Alright. Now take a few more minutes, because I do want to get to predestination. Um, Calvin went to Geneva, he was called back in 1541, uh, for a variety of reasons, mostly political. Alright, which I don't have time to go into. First thing he did was impose a set of ecclesiastical ordinances, this is canonical liturgical law, which among other things eventually declared Calvin's institutes to be the official theology of the city of Geneva, and contradicting the ministers was an offense punishable by law. Alright, needless to say, he encountered certain pastoral challenges. <laughs> um, let me see if I can find this text that I want share with you on that. Oh yes, there was a fellow by the name of Pierre Rommel. Uh, one of the things that Calvin ran into big time is that he kept recruiting French pastors to come into Geneva and pastor. Calvin was a Frenchman. The Genevans were not French. They spoke French, but they were not French. They had some suspicion of the French, alright. And uh, the more uh, Calvin wrote and exhorted the French to flee the idolatry of Rome in France and the more the French persecuted Protestantism, the more French Protestants fled into Geneva. Uh, eventually, through immigration, immigration, the electorate was tipped in Calvin's favor, not because he was persuasive, but because so many of his countrymen came over and then they voted the native Genevans out. Okay. So, um, uh, oh yes, okay, so anyway, this covenant, accused Calvin of running the city, overrunning it with Frenchmen, and teaching false doctrine. Uh, Calvin's response was characteristic. He went to the city council and said, the slander is known throughout the city that Amo has accused Calvin of preaching false doctrine. May messieurs understand that the name of God has been blasphemed. The name of God has been blasphemed. Because Pierre was accused Calvin of teaching false doctrine, Calvin retorted that the name of God has been blasphemed. So Amo was required to do public preparation for his offense against Monsieur Calvin. Um, Calvin instituted the institution of the consistory which is essentially an ecclesiastical court the job of which was to oversee the faith and laws of the city of Geneva. Um, And uh, read the records of the consistory, it's fascinating reading. One of my favorite texts that came out of consistory records was a woman was called in for contradicting the ministers and her response was do we have to believe the pastors if they say that there is no water in the River? <laughs> There's the Rhone river in Geneva. Okay. Um, another, this, there are a lot of controversies. One of the most interesting was a controversy over baptismal names. The Calvinist pastors, Calvinist associates, insisted that native Genevans name their children after Old Testament saints, right, um, and not after uh, family names, which are often Catholic saints. Um, and and uh, it really it, it kind of blew up and it got quite contentious because somebody would bring their child for baptism and the pastor would say, you know, what name do you give this child? And they would say Fossil. And the pastor would say, I baptize the Abraham And it really ticked people off, as you imagine. so now briefly, predestination. Um, the most interesting uh okay, call predestination, just real brief. Uh okay, predestination, predestination. Um, predestination is the doctrine most commonly associated with Calvin. Um, most Calvinists, I think, don't fully appreciate all the ways it functions in his thought. The controversies attached to it. All right, um, you know, Cal- briefly, Calvin's doctrine of predestination was that God elects before the foundation of the world some people to salvation. Uh, the vast majority, He elects. Intentionally creates them for the purpose of damning them, and this somehow exalts His glory. Okay, so the vast majority of human race was created for the simple purpose of damning them. That's called double predestination. Right? Uh, just so you know, Catholics also believe in predestination. Who can you know this? Catholics also have a doctrine of predestination. Why? It's a biblical doctrine. You find it all through the New Testament. Right? Saint Augustine, Saint Thomas wrote about it most uh, prolifically. But the Catholic doctrine is very different. The Catholic doctrine of predestination is simply that to those whom God knows will be saved, if, i.e., the elect, He gives the efficacious grace which will infallibly achieve its effect. Right? This is important for us to believe because we understand that you don't have grace because you did something good. Right? You weren't baptized because you did something good. You didn't deserve to be baptized. God graciously gave you the grace to be baptized in the Catholic faith, and if you persevere to the end, He you will have graciously given you that persevering grace. Um, what the church does not teach is number one, the church does not teach double predestination. God does not predestine anybody to hell. All right. The church also doesn't describe how efficacious grace coheres with our free will. All right. And that's a commandment. All right. The church doesn't tell us. In fact, the most interesting controversy I think in Catholic theological history was the, uh, was the Congregatio de Auxilium in the sixteenth century, when the Dominicans and the Jesuits were arguing over the relationship of efficacious grace to free will. And the Dominicans took a much more sort of hard line predestination line, and the Jesuits were contending much more for free will, and they were each calling each other heretics. So they appealed to the Pope at the time, and, uh, and the Pope said, I'll consider it. Right. In the meanwhile, shut up about calling each other heretics, go back to your schools and teach theology, and I'll let you know when I've made a decision. We're still waiting from the result. So, in other words, this is one of those things that the church allows multiple schools of thought. Uh, finally, uh, the church doesn't tell us why God gives efficacious grace to one and not another. Is it because God foresees the free use we will make of that efficacious grace, as the Jacobites and Mullins told, or is it for his own inscrutable purposes, as the Dominicans told? Uh, both of these are, are consistent with Catholic thought. And the church doesn't dogmatize. All we need to know is that God will give the grace necessary and sufficient for salvation and efficacious for salvation to those whom he knows, in whatever way, will be saved. That's the Catholic doctrine. All right. Calvin, in his early thought, appealed to predestination as an explanation for how the church had survived under the Roman tyranny. Because he had a problem on his hands. If if the early church was Calvinist and then it went bad and then he restored it, how does he account for the 1,500 years in between? Right. What he said was that God had maintained a remnant elected by grace. In the same way he would have kept a remnant with the old covenant. Israel was in idolatry. Through God's predestinating grace, he had kept a few faithful, scattered here and there and throughout the world. That's the way he appealed to predestination in his early writings. Interestingly, as he encountered challenges in Geneva, he, he put a different spin on it. Predestination became an explanation for why not everybody agrees with Calvin. Because right? he would preach in his own church and people weren't necessarily on board. And his answer was, well, if you don't agree with me, it obviously means that you're not elect. Right? And uh, so it had an ecclesiological angle. Right? And then the most interesting controversy of all times, and I'll probably have to end here, uh, was over predestination in the city of Geneva. There was a former Carmelite monk named Jerome Volsic who was a professor. Oh, excuse me. He converted the Protestantism, and he would come through Geneva. And he heard a sermon on predestination, and he thought it was horrible. He thought it was horrible, so he stood up and he challenged the pastor. He said, "I want you to prove this from scripture, and I'm going to argue the point." Well, he was imprisoned at once. He was imprisoned at once, and and accused of all kinds of crimes. And Calvin once wrote to a friend that he wished to be were for rotting in a dish, and ultimately he got expelled from the city. But he generated a lot of popular sympathy, and the reason he generated popular sympathy, well, you can understand why I might like in the back is that not only did he, he, he did three things. Bolsik, first of all, undercut Calvin's argument for his own particular ecclesiastical authority. You can't stay up there and say, you're right because you're elect, you're wrong because you're not elect. Right. Right, so that was an important division between Calvin and his opponents. Bolsik challenged that. Secondly, Bolsik did something that Calvin did. Bolsik said, I have the Holy Spirit. I'm a believer in Christ, same as you. I can also read the Bible and interpret it. And When I read scripture, I don't get this doctrine. So, I want you to dialogue with me and we will have an argument about the correct interpretation of the Bible. In other words, it feel the principle of Saul's return, Right? Calvin would have none of it, none of it. And most of the debate devolved over, not the question of predestination, but the, de- the question of who had the right to interpret scripture. Was it the reformed Calvinistic magisteria, as Calvin held, or was it the common man inspired by the Holy Spirit? So, it reveals one of these fundamental fault lines within Protestantism, Right. And ultimately, Calvin won, just by force of authority, and Jerome Bolshev was kicked out. But it's extremely revealing about the nature of Protestantism and the within Calvinism. and emerged over the of Predestination. Finally, Calvin, as I mentioned before, uh, was able to consolidate the reform in 1559 because of the immigration. <coughs> um, he gained the right to excommunicate. He excommunicated one of the 25 people in Geneva. Um, they kicked out the dissenters. 1559 edition of the Institutes, Galvin Confession of Faith, that's the French Reformed Church, was 1559. I'm just going to um, speed through this now. Uh, Abroad, Calvin wrote to the King of Poland there are persons who persist in the superstitions of the Roman Antichrist. They deserve to be repressed by the sword. Calvin carried on a correspondence with King Edward the Lord Protector of Somerset in England and laid out the theoretical basis for the persecution of Protestants under Elizabeth. Um, so he, was, he, he had no concept of uh, religious toleration. Uh, Calvinism evolved to the French wars of religion. The rise of Puritanism I don't have time to talk about, but I wish I could. The rise of evangelicalism, liberalism as I mentioned. Um, and, uh, and then today we have arrived at evangelical Protestantism, which is uh, a, a complete <coughs> antidote. the opposite of Calvin. George Whitfield, who considered himself a Calvinist, wrote in the 18th century Best to preach the new birth and the power of godliness and not insist on the form, of the liturgy, the authority. For people will never be brought to my mind as to that, nor did Christ ever intend it. So, the idea of denominationalism in the 18th century, something radically different from Calvin. Uh, rise of liberalism. I'm just going to skip this because we're running out of time. Here's our old friend Joel Listing. All these, all these things I wanted to trace to Calvinism when I ran out of time. Oh, denominationalism, the Catholic moment. Um... And uh, I love this text from Martin the Calvinist, actually. Um, in view of all this, up, this um, confusion in modern evangelicalism, it all says Whenever evangelicals have been admonished uh, for weaknesses in ecclesiology, tradition, and intellectual life, sacraments, theology, culture, aesthetics, philosophical theology, or historical consciousness, the result has almost been uh, a selective appreciation for elements of the Catholic tradition. Calvinism broke it apart, now we're beginning to see. Protestants moved back into the Catholic tradition to recover these Catholic movements that Calvin wished to retain and couldn't. But he can't create his Alright. This, Calvin's quote from a sermon he gave on Ezekiel. There are some people today who say, There's Calvin, who makes himself a prophet when he says that one will know there is a prophet among us. He's talking about himself. Is he a prophet? Well, since it's the doctrine of God I'm announcing, I have to use this language. So it's self-understanding. So basically, Calvin saw to combine the authority of prophetism, the interior dimension, you know, the spirit has inspired me to say, right, with an ordered ecclesial authority. So he believed in external religious authority, but he also privileged, you know, the domain of conscience in his own case, you know, in particular. The Catholic Church wisely separates those rules. The Catholic Church balances the competing demands of conscience on the one hand and external authority on the other. The Catholic Church balances the prophetic charism, which God intended for himself. The Catholic Church balances the prophetic charism with the magisterial charism, with the objective, external, visible authority that's grounded in the objective word of Christ. You know, one of my favorite incidences in Catholic history is when St. Catherine of Siena went to Avignon. I believe Catherine of Siena had the gift of prophecy. She was a prophet, she was not the Pope. She went to the Pope and inspired by the Spirit of God. She said, you need to hightail it out of Avignon and go back to Rome and do your duty. quit duty, playing cards with your cousins. Right? And inspired by the Spirit of God, she exhorted the magisterial authority who, 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 who listened, not because he felt bound by her personal authority, but because he recognized the Spirit of Christ in her. So within the confines of the objective authority of the magisterium, the prophetic gift can manifest and operate but the church wisely separates these gifts. Calvin tried to draw them together as an person. Um, he looked for certainty, but he looked in all the wrong places. Um, Calvin rightly called for a more informed participation in the liturgy, but he deformed the liturgy in the process. All right, so. Is that about an hour? Okay. That is. Okay, good. Any questions? the idea of predestination the idea of also evangelization, how does that mesh? your are predestined why evangelize the people who are... Why, well, are you speaking now as a Calvinist or as a Catholic? I mean, are you no, thinking... If, as a Protestant. Why do the, the Protestants reconcile the idea that, you know, if there's predestination? Sure, I don't sure, sure, Okay, well, a couple of things on that. First of all, um, uh, you know, the missionary movement in Catholicism I mean, of course, as little as the church. And it got a real a kick in the pants with the discovery of the new world and exploration of the 16th century. And the Jesuits, interestingly, who were probably more inclined along the free will rather than the predestination of that debate, they were the ones that went out first into the jungles and the highways and the byways and evangelizing. The Dominicans came in afterwards as inquisitors. You know. And uh, we need both characters, by the way. Um, and in Protestantism, uh, missionary activity was kind of dull um, uh, for a couple hundred years. And Calvin's idea of mission was, he had, a, he had a doctrine of mission, but he was evangelizing Catholics, right? He wanted to bring the lost sheep of Christ back within the proper fold, you know, to bring liturgical order and discipline to the churches of Christ, which he thought would reform society. So his view of mission was really reaching out to France, in particular, and trying to plant reformed churches in France. Uh, which had a direct impact on the Wars of religion and ultimately on the French Revolution. But in terms of you know, sending people to the far corners of the earth, Calvin didn't really have a doctrine of that. However, Calvinist churches in the 19th century were among believers in the world missionary movement. The modern mission- Protestant missionary movement owes a lot to the Calvinist tradition. Uh, the dynamic there changed as Calvinism tended to break outside of its liturgical boundaries. Evangelicalism <clears throat> came in, just emphasis on the doctrine of the New Birth, experiential religion. That prompted a lot of the way of social reform as well as the missionary mandate. I grew up in the Calvinist church. It was very strongly grounded in the doctrine of predestination. Let me tell you, there was some of the most missionary-minded people I've ever seen. One of the reasons I have. The vocation I have today, I'm grateful to say, is because my Calvinist parents filled our home with missionaries. I grew up with you know people coming in from Latin America and Europe and Asia, sharing their stories of conversion and the life of Christ. And um, so you know there are all kinds of paradoxes there. There are all kinds of paradoxes. How well they resolve them, I don't know. On the other hand, uh, I have another close relative who was nearly suicidal during most of his adolescence. Because he would sit there and meditate over and over and think he created them to damn it. he created them to damn it. And he thought, better better to throw myself off the bridge, you know, than to live my life in submission to such a God. So all kinds of paradoxes. And I know a lot of people who judge not just the Calvinism, but the Christian faith, altogether because of this kind of a picture of the deity. <coughs> you're part of the elect, and if you're not part of the elect, Do you just continue to go to church until eventually you can become part of the elect? That's a fascinating question. And it's it's the question that motivated the entire advent of Puritanism. So in Calvin's Geneva, Calvin thought that there was a visible church, an external church, you know, to which civil society could be called and everybody would be outwardly the baptized and they all participate in the rites and so forth. Um, but the real measure of, you know, were you in communion with Christ was were you in submission to the ministry, right? Did you adhere to the doctrine taught by Calvin and the pastors? Did you receive the sacraments and obedience? These kinds of things would be positive evidence of an election. The difficulty came in in the 17th century because Calvinism was the state religion in Geneva. It was not the state religion in England, which was Anglicanism. And Calvinists were looked at it askance in England. And so Calvinists themselves had to work out if we don't have the sacraments, if we don't have an ordered church hierarchy along Calvinist lines, how then do we determine our election? Because we don't have an authority to be obedient to, right? So they started churning out manuals of psychology, literally, right? Some, Some Puritan psychologists, very detailed, tracing out what they would call a morphology of conversion, steps that you would look for in your interior life that would let you know that the signs of grace there's there a famous Puritan named William Perkins who wrote a book called The Golden Chain. And it, it literally lays out all these sort of interior psychological steps that you can follow. All right? um, and so when the Puritans were able to have their own ordered churches in New England, the question of being able to discern your election became so acute that they turned Calvinist ecclesiology on its head and said, you can't be a member of the church unless you can attest to your election. So Calvin would have said, you know your election because of your membership in the church. The Puritans in New England said, "Uh, you can't be a member of the church unless you can attest to your election. So they made election primary and church membership secondary. It's called the New England Way. And they, in fact, even restricted the franchise. You couldn't even vote in civil elections or hold office unless you could attest to your election and your conversion experience and so forth. And uh, that was so problematic um, because they did have the question of what about people who are visibly in association with the church but haven't had a conversion experience? Can they bring their children for baptism? Because in Calvinist theology, the only reason you can baptize children is because they share the covenant of the parents after the Old Testament model. And so they had situations of denying baptism to children because their parents couldn't account for their conversion. And then they came up with a compromise called the halfway covenant. The halfway covenant. You read about it in American history textbooks, All right? And ultimately, the whole thing broke down, and they finally just threw ecclesiology out the window altogether and just said the only thing that matters is the experience of personal regeneration. And that's where you get the, the birth of evangelical Protestantism and denominationalism, like we saw with Whitfield. The only thing that matters is that you've had this experience of Christ. It doesn't matter where you go to church, it doesn't matter whether or not you receive the sacraments. And so today, Calvinism has devolved into. You know, if I pray to receive Christ, if I, you know, read a formula off of a prayer card in a revival meeting, then I know I'm going to heaven. That was not Calvin's vision, but that's what it ultimately devolved into. I have an article you might want to look at called have You Been Born Again A Catholic Perspective on a Protestant Doctrine, where I trace the evolution of this problem from Calvin all the way to Billy Graham. And it's my foundation. So you could be laying on your deathbed, convinced. You're not part of the elect. You, you could be. Now, in, in practice, my, my experience is, living, living this thing out, all right, is that most Calvinists will tend toward presumption rather than despair. All right? You're, you're more thought- likely. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'll I give a story. I was on an airplane one time. And this is when I was moving towards Catholicism. All right? And I was actually, I was reading a book in Catholic Biblical Studies. All right? I'm sitting there reading about the Gospel of John. And there's a guy sitting next to me, and he, he kind of struck me as like, you know, he, he would have gone well in the movie Airplane. You know, he was kind of uncouth and loud and boisterous, and he was flirting in kind of vulgar ways with the stewardesses. And he was ordering more alcohol and more alcohol, and he was very voluble, and I, I really was finding him a bit distasteful, okay? And he looks over at me, and he says, what are you reading? I said, like, oh, I'm reading this book by a Catholic scholar on the Gospel of John. And then uh, and then he gets this real kind of superior look on his face and he says, Well, you know, you know you're only saved by grace through faith alone. <laughs> and I thought, that's telling, you know. Um and that's my experience is that they tend more towards presumption. And then if they really do despair, pretend towards despair, you don't stay in that experience for very long before you just judge the faith. Yeah. And so there may be some temperamental differences. You know, Calvinists, Calvinism I think attracts a certain personality. Um, one of the things that attracted me to Calvinism is that I like the idea of being one of the Illuminati. I like the idea of being an intellectual who had an answer to question and authority and all kinds of stuff. Calvinists are very, very theologically minded. They make really good biblical scholars and systematicians and they make real terrible party lists. <laughs> Anything else? Right. Thank you all so much. For yeah. What point, what was the high point where uh, you had to accept the truth from the Catholic perspective in your own internal conscience and the only teaching that you got from the time you came out of the cradle? There were a couple of key steps. The first one was not related to Calvin, it was related to Luther. And whether you're a Calvinist or a Lutheran, all Protestants believe that the church was at some point pure, that it became corrupt. And then it was reformed in the 16th century. You are also taught that the doctrine on which the church stands or falls is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's Luther's doctrine. We all learned about it last month, I'm sure. So I put those two things together in my mind. And I realized that if the only thing that really matters is faith alone, and the early church was right, all right, then it must be the case that the early church believed in the Lutheran doctrine of justification. That has to be the case. Otherwise, the whole whole narrative breaks down. So as a historian, I I looked assiduously for the doctrine of justification by faith alone in the writings of the church fathers, especially Augustine, but other fathers as well. And as you know, it it is ridiculously, manifestly, and obviously absent from any of the writings of the fathers. And in fact, the picture they paint of the relationship between faith and the moral life and grace is, is radically different from anything that Luther or Calvin taught. And that bothered me a lot when I discovered this. And so I started digging back into the New Testament and I avoided Catholic scholarship and I kept myself limited to the best in Reformed Protestant scholarship of the second half of the 20th century. Men like N.T. Wright, Christer Stendhal, and James Dunn, and EP Sanders are all names that biblical scholars would be very familiar with. They're all Protestants and they're all reformed except one, one of them's a Lutheran. And they all held to a man that Luther had radically misread St. Paul. All right, just radically misread him. And they weren't Catholics, but their views broke apart this picture of early church corruption reform on that one doctrine. That upset me a lot and really shook the foundations of my Protestantism. At the same time, um, I was considering the logic of Calvin's thinking. Things like, how logical is it to base my religious beliefs on an interior religious experience finding internal feeling? Right? And I saw that there was no, there was no rationality there. That was a raw subjectivism. And I also began to uncover the riches, intellectual brilliance and coherence of the Catholic faith. So I remember the, the first time I read John Courtney Murray, the Jesuit public theologian. And uh, you know, Murray doesn't write on these issues, but I remember reading Murray and, and the whole sort of vista of Catholic natural law thinking and, and, and the great tradition opened up before me in, in all its sort of scholastic brilliance. And it was the first time I ever saw the thing as uh, the beauty that it is. And I didn't yet believe it, but I realized that I had encountered an intellectual system that had all of the graces and the virtues that I thought I would find in Calvinism that were lacking, all right? And then I began to say, I need to take this Catholic thing more seriously. And so Aquinas was the bridge that showed me how a rational ascent of faith could be made, how you could combine faith and reason, grace and the will, in a rationally coherent way, all right? And, and then I stopped, all right? So I had, I had the full vision of Catholic beauty and truth in front of me. And I had the wreckage of Protestantism behind me, and I was sitting there in the middle, waiting for God to make me will it. And, and of course, God doesn't act that way. You know, he's not a Calvinist God. Right? He gives you sufficient grace, but He demands the cooperation of the human will. And and I, in that in that interim, I realized, you know, uh, my personal moral life began to deteriorate. My marriage was. Troubled. I was having children come on, you know, on board. And, and I saw, you know, I really need the grace of the sacraments. And I need the company of the saints. And I need the Blessed Mother. And I need all these things. And, uh, and I, it, it can be done. It's rational. It's beautiful. It's helpful. It's true. And then I, I met a friend who was a brethren, a Christian brethren. And I said, where do you go to church? She said, I'm a, I'm a brethren. But I'm thinking of becoming a Catholic. And when he said that, it was like somebody just hit me in the side of the head. And I went, oh, you can do that, can't you? You can actually become a Catholic. You know, it never, like the final step had never crossed my mind. And I went, it, you, you can actually, a person can actually become Catholic. If I were to do that, all of these pieces would fall in place. And my life would make sense. And it would be beautiful. And, and then I went to my wife and I said, I think I have to become a Catholic. And she said... First you led me out of that church, and now you want to leave me right back in it. And, uh, and, and I, I made the most anticlimactic entrance into the Catholic faith you could imagine with the opposition of my family. The funniest thing, my parents thought I was becoming Catholic because they mistakenly thought that a Presbyterian congregation had offended me. It's not true, but that's what they thought. Uh, and my father sort of took me under his wing and wanted to counsel me, and he said, you know, David, Just because a church has something wrong with it doesn't mean you have to leave it. And I said, Dad, you've never said a truer word. (laughs) And he went, Oops. (laughs) And, uh, And it's been a magnificent journey, but nothing like what I expected. Because as you know, the Catholic faith doesn't promise fireworks, it promises the cross, it promises darkness, it promises reason. Uh, but faith, walking in the fo- in the footsteps of Christ, and when I stepped into the Catholic Church, it's not like everybody was like, "Oh, yay, you're Catholic now!" You know, it wasn't like that. And so it was—it's been magnificent and wonderful. But it's—and uh, um, uh, I would never go back. I would never do anything else. But it's a mystery. It unfolds every day in new ways, and i, I, I never could anticipate what God would have done in my life. I'm So grateful. Well, thank you. For- thank you.